0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. Real love is calling, opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting with every
1: sunrise. His timing is always perfect. And I've coined this little phrase over the years because I believe it, but God's delay is often for his display what we think is god's you know really taking a long time to answer this prayer to do this or it's often because he wants things to get to the place where he is most visible and most glorified in our lives and that's what he wanted to do in the life of abraham and sarah they tried to rush the process it wasn't god's will but the child of the promise came
0: How often do you try to rush the process instead of waiting on God's timing? It's a story told over and over, and it never ends well. Abraham and Sarah did that when it felt like they would never have the child God had promised them, and they caused trouble for their descendants for generations afterward. God didn't abandon them, though. He still brought the promised child. Don't try to rush God or make His promises happen on your timing. Trust Him that His plans are for your good and His glory. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: We're in Hebrews chapter 6, friends. So if you'll take your Bibles and go to Hebrews, we are in chapter 6. We left off right at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 6, so that's where we're going to start. And between verses 4, 5, and 6, which is where we were last time, he warns about the potential of falling away. And I'll read again just to get the context because it leads into where we are tonight into verse 7. So verses 4 through 6, he says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace." So, last time we were together, I broke down those verses. We spent an entire service talking about just those verses. I'm not going to go over that again, only insofar as to say that he mentions here the potential to fall away. That's the word that he uses there in verse 6. It's a, you know, two words in the English, fall away. It's one word in the original Greek language. It's parapipto. Parapipto is from two Greek words, para meaning away, and pipto meaning to fall. So, it literally means to fall away. And there's a difference between, please note, there's a difference between falling and falling away. We all from time to time will stumble. We will fall. We will disappoint God. We will sin. That's very different from falling away. It's the difference between Peter and Judas. You know, Peter fell. You know, he denied knowing Christ, and he was ashamed of the association for for his own sake. He wanted to save his own skin. So he didn't want to be, you know, guilty by association. They're crucifying Jesus. So he's like, deny, I don't even know. I don't even know this Jesus guy. So he's, he's lying, and so, he, so in that, he falls, okay? But he also gets restored. Why? Because he repents. Versus Judas, who fell away. It wasn't just a, I denied Christ. He betrayed Christ and, and rejected him. So the difference between falling which we all will unfortunately experience from time to time, and falling away is the difference between repentance and rejection. When we repent, we can be restored. When you reject and you fall away and you deny Christ and reject Him in the sense of having no no relationship with Him whatsoever, which is the case with Judas, then there's no sacrifice of sins left for you. I mean, you can't be saved any other way except through Jesus. So all of that to say that he leads now into verse 7, which is where we left off last time, to give an illustration, warning about the consequences of falling away. And so in verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says, "...land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed." In the end, it will be burned. Now, that's just simply an illustration, kind of a farming illustration to, with you know, rain and land and, and fruitfulness versus thistles and thorns to basically communicate the idea that when God showers down His grace, if you receive it and respond to it, you'll produce a fruitful life. If you reject it, it'll be like a life where like the land produces thorns and thistles, and thus, at the end, you'll be judged for it. That's that statement about, well, in the end, it'll be burned. You know, land that just has a bunch of uh, thorns and thistles is worthless and it's going to be burned. So it, he's just using this metaphorical language here about land that drinks in the rain. You know, hopefully we are people who drink in the grace of God and we respond, you know, to God's love in our lives and to his grace in our lives. And we, and we follow Jesus and we love Jesus and we live a life that honors Jesus and thus we'll be blessed for it because that's the analogy there. The land that drinks in the rain and produces fruitfulness uh, uh, will be blessed. Uh, it, the, it's, it receives the blessing of God. But, verse 8, but the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So it's the difference between receiving and welcoming God's grace in our lives and responding to that and producing a life that is fruitful in honor of God versus a life that just rejects it and and therefore will face judgment. And he says in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. He says God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Notice the writer of Hebrews transitions here from kind of this very strong exhortation about not falling away, and then he illustrates the serious consequences of it, to now just kind of breathing some encouragement. And, and he's, not, he's wanting them to be encouraged here. And he says, listen, you know, God, God is not unjust. And so don't worry. And he says, God's not going to forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And he says there in verse 11, he says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. like keep persevering in order to make your hope. Sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who who through faith and patience, circle those two words, faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Now, in the next section here of chapter six, he's going to, he's going to give an example and a great example of someone who operated in faith and patience. And he's going to draw on the example of Abraham. You know, you talk about a guy who really demonstrated faith and patience. And, but again, you know, he made some mistakes in there too, but he was, he still persevered, trusted God, was a man of faith and patience. So he's going to use Abraham as a good example here. So next verse, verse 13. He says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. All right, now a quick revisit of history, just so we can understand how faithful and patient Abraham was. So you don't need to turn back there. I'm just going to summarize the events. Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham when he's still named Abram. And says, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your country. I want you to come to the land I'm, I'm going to give you. Because out of the seed of Abraham will come the Jewish nation. Will, be, will come Israel. That It will be birthed through the seed of Abraham. And so God speaks to him in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, 75 years of age. And he gives a promise to Abraham. You're going to have children. Because up until this point, he and his wife Sarah had not been able to have kids. And God now tells him, even in your, even in your old age and Sarah's old age, you guys are going to have kids, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You won't be able to count them. And I'm going to birth a nation out of you. And God makes precious promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and following. All right? Now, 75, when he hears this, it's not till he's 100 that he has Isaac, the child of the promise. So he's 100, Sarah's 90, and God is faithful to his promise. So, listen, he's 75 when God gives him the promise. He's 100 when it actually transpires. He's waiting 25 years for this to happen. But God's faithful. Now, as many of you know, know, between Genesis 12, when God spoke the promise, and then Genesis 21, when Isaac was born, there's Genesis 16. And Genesis 16 is when Abraham tried to help God out and decides, maybe if I you know, sleep with my wife's maidservant, Hagar, I will help God and hasten this promise. And then Ishmael is born. All right, so Abraham's not a perfect guy. None of us is. That was not in keeping with the plan of God and the will of God. Isaac was the child of the promise. But it would be 25 years until that promise would be realized. And God is always faithful to his promises. He just doesn't do things as quickly as you and I might want him to. He's on a different timetable. His timetable is perfect. Our timetable is always like, we want things now. And if God doesn't answer my prayer, whether I pray on Monday, if he doesn't answer it by Thursday, I'm mad. And that's the way most of us are in our, in our walk with God. And we need to just chill out a little bit and throw it down into low because God is going to take his sweet time to do things his perfect way. His timing is always perfect. And I've coined this little phrase over the years because I believe it. But God's delay is often for his display. What we think is God's, you know, really taking a long time to answer this prayer, or to do this. or to, It's often because he wants things to get to the place where he is most visible and most glorified in our lives. And that's what he wanted to do in the life of Abraham and Sarah. They tried to rush the process. It wasn't God's will, but the child of the promise came in Genesis 21 when Isaac is born. And God is faithful to his promises. And so the writer of Hebrews here is reminding not just his recipients of the letter, but us today here, wait patiently. God is faithful to his promises. Now, verse 16, we'll keep reading. He says, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Now, I'll save the last sentence, because it actually fits better with chapter 7. But let me just kind of recap what he's saying here. So first he says, God made an oath to Abraham, and there's no, no one higher to swear by. You know how when we, we take an oath, like in a court of law or something, you know, you swear to tell the truth, hold truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. You're swearing by a higher authority. Well, when God makes a promise, who does he swear by? I mean, there, there is no higher authority, and so, so God swears by his own name, and he says, I, I promise. And there's two unchangeable things here that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. One is that when God makes a promise, it will always come to pass in God's timing. And the other unchangeable thing is God's character, because that's why he adds there in the middle of verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. So two unchangeable things. God's promise will always be fulfilled and when God makes a promise it it won't change and the fact of God's character is unchanging because when he says something he never lies. And so we can be certain, in other words, the summary of this chapter is after all of this kind of, you know, strong exhortation here, like like, grow up in your faith, and don't be lazy, and go on to maturity, and make sure you don't fall away. And if you fall away, it'll be like land that, that doesn't drink in the rain, and you end up just producing thorns and thistles, and you'll be judged. And, and so then he summarizes all of this, he goes but be encouraged. It's okay, because God is faithful to his promises. Jesus died on a cross. He forgives you of your sins, and so put your faith and trust in Jesus. There's going to be this eternal reward, and glory awaits us, and how can we be sure? Because God tells us so, and God is always faithful to His promises, and God never lies. Okay, that's the summary there of chapter six. Now he, he he mentions here about Jesus, and he talks there in using this language of imagery in verse twenty when he says, "Where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf." Sorry, let me back up. Verse nineteen: We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. So we have to understand the ancient temple that stood in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in 70 AD, to, and, and to understand kind of the dynamics of, of Jewish worship and the rituals involved in order to appreciate what he's saying here. So the temple of Israel, the temple of God in, in Jerusalem, was divided into different sections, when you enter the courtyard area, that's one area, but then you, you can enter, the priest would enter the temple itself, and that was the, the holy place, which was divided by a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Now, if you're just a, a commoner, you couldn't go in the temple. If you were a priest, you could go in the temple. But if, as a priest, you could never go behind the curtain into the most holy place unless you were the high priest. Only the high priest could go behind the curtain into the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. And the, the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was two angels out of, uh, carved out of gold, wings outstretched, facing each other on the top of this Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And the Bible says in different places, the book of Psalms mentions it, how, how the, the God's glory would rest between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And when the high priest would go behind the curtain once a year with the blood of the sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation, it's called the holy day, Yom Kippur, uh, he would go in to sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of an animal sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the whole people once a year. But only that high priest could go in. Only that high priest had access. Now, remember when Jesus dies on the cross, the Bible says what gets torn at the time of the crucifixion? That that curtain inside the temple gets miraculously torn by God. There's an earthquake. At the moment Christ is crucified, there's an earthquake, and that curtain is torn. And interestingly, the Bible says not from the bottom to the top, it gets torn from top to bottom. And that's an interesting detail because the Bible just wants to make everybody understand for sure that it wasn't somebody who came and stood at the base and ripped the curtain from the bottom up this was god who tore it from the top down and the reason god tore the curtain top down was to signify that the barrier which previously had existed between man and god no longer existed because jesus christ had bridged that gap and jesus christ had made it possible not just for a priest but for any person at all to have access to god through Jesus Christ. So when the writer of Hebrews here talks about how we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. See, he's, he's explaining what the Jews would have understood in their history that the temple represented here this barrier. There's a curtain here. We can't get to God except through a high priest. And the writer of Hebrews is now going to go into more detail in the next following chapter, starting here in chapter 7, about how Jesus is our high priest, and by His atoning death on a cross, the barrier no longer exists, and we can have direct access to God, relationship with Him, fellowship with Him. He is our high priest. So, chapter 6 ends with this sentence. He, that is Jesus, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I want you to circle that guy's name, Melchizedek, because he gets a lot of press coverage in the next chapter. In fact, an entire chapter, all of chapter 7 is really devoted to him as kind of the backdrop to helping us understand the priesthood of Jesus. So I'm going to take some time first to just mention real briefly as we understand who is Melchizedek. We have to understand Melchizedek in order to understand the high priesthood of Jesus. And so Melchizedek is mentioned here in chapter 6. He he was also mentioned in chapter 5, and he's going to be mentioned several times here in chapter 7. A little bit of background on Melchizedek, and we don't have much. He's mentioned only two times in the Old Testament. He's mentioned once in Genesis 14. And once in Psalm 110, that's it. Once in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 110. And then he's mentioned eight times here in the book of Hebrews between chapters 5, 6, and 7. The first time he's mentioned in Genesis 14, is because he has an encounter with Abraham. Then we don't hear anything about him for a thousand years. And David writes about him in Psalm 110. And then we don't hear about him again for another thousand years. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on his story. So he's a very interesting character. Now, I'm going to read to you the account from Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, so you get the Old Testament backdrop to the New Testament story. And, and you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. In Genesis 14, after Abraham has had a successful military campaign, he then is visited by this, up to this point, unknown person in Genesis 14, I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. That's the only reference to Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth, of everything. Okay, that's it. That's the first reference we have to Melchizedek, and that's all we have. And then he doesn't appear, fades off the pages of history, and, and he reappears in Psalm 110. If you want to go to Psalm 110, it's just one verse. It's verse 4, and David mentions him. And when David writes Psalm 110, he's writing a messianic passage, because he's going to talk about how the Messiah is in the order of of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, we read in Genesis 14 that he is identified as a priest, and David picks up in Psalm 110, verse 4, and this is all he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, speaking prophetically about the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, that's it. That's the only thing we have in the Old Testament. Now, you can go back here to Hebrews And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this guy. And so who exactly is he? His identity has been greatly debated over the centuries, over the millennia. I'm going to give you my opinion, but I will tell you that you can read different commentaries and you're going to read different things. And so it's fair, but I'm going to make the argument for why I believe that what I'm going to present to you is accurate, but you know, doesn't that sound haughty? But how else am I going to teach this? I suppose it could be this. I suppose it could be it could be a variety of things. But I'm going to make the argument, and you can decide for yourself. One of the things that is out there is, and this was actually started by a rabbi in 135 BC, Rabbi Ismael. He believes that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah, and there are many Jews who believe that today. Now. It is true that Shem was a contemporary of Abraham. It's difficult sometimes to think about the chronology of events in our Bibles, but you know, Noah gets off the ark and he has three sons with him, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Shem was alive at the time that Abraham was alive. Abraham only lived to be 175. Man's longevity began to decline as sin took root and corrupted the human race. Until now, on average, I mean, the Bible talks about how 70 is the average lifespan. I think, think, you know, with different medical advances and stuff, I think it's like close to 76 for men and 78 for women, somewhere along those lines. But Shem lived to be 600 years old. Abraham only lived to be 175. So Shem was still living when Abraham was alive. But I don't think it was Shem. An ocean. jump in
0: and you'll find the your connection Run towards your new life. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through the Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link at our website, along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, come visit us. You'll find service times and more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again, 703-771-1500. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker in your Bible where we left off in Hebrews and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place you know